You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now will you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to read John's account of the very same miracle that we read in Matthew and Mark earlier. John 6. And we'll begin reading verse 15. remind you that verse 15 picks up right after he has fed the multitudes, and this is the response of the crowds. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we come now to your word with the confidence that your word contains all that is necessary for life and for godliness. We know it is sufficient. We believe it is sufficient. It says it is sufficient, and so we entrust ourselves to it and pray that you would use it to sanctify us, your people, to guide us in truth, to open our eyes to your truth. We pray that you would give us understanding and illumination here, that our time together may result in us being edified and equipped to serve you. Give us grace to be obedient and help us to stand in awe of our Creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we are only five or six chapters into the Gospel of John, and we are already now looking at the fifth of the seven signs that John records. I noticed something this last week. It never occurred to me until this last week that... John sort of front-end loads his gospel with the signs. There are seven signs that he records. All seven of them come in the first half of the book. So we've looked at all seven signs by the time we get to chapter 11, and then I noticed that the teaching section is sort of loaded at the back end of the book. And it was just an observation. I don't know that we can make anything of it, but seven signs at the beginning sort of convince us that this is somebody we should listen to. And then the teaching at the end of the book, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is his extended teaching on who he is and sort of the application of the signs, as it were. And then, of course, 18 through the end of the book is his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the signs after his resurrection. So we are only in chapter 6, and now we're looking at the fifth of the seven signs. You remember the first five, or the first four that we looked at. There is the turning of the water into wine in chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, then the multiplying of the bread and fish at the beginning of chapter 6, and now we're at sign number 5, and that is Jesus walking on water. We call them signs because they point to something, and that's what a sign did. A sign pointed to something. It indicated something. And signs in the Gospels are intended to point our attention, to direct our attention to some element of Christ's character, his nature, his person, his work, his teaching, Um, His mission, something that he came to do or something that he came to say, the sign is always intended to point us to something. And so we ask as we go through these signs, all seven of them, what does this miracle teach me about Jesus? 
Because that's what the miracle is intended to do. It's not just intended to wow us. The miracles are intended to teach us something about Jesus. And all the way through the Gospels, we find that indeed Jesus' miracles become uh, teaching opportunities. The bread of heaven is the discourse in chapter 6, and that comes right after he has multiplied bread and fish. And so we ask this question, that Jesus walking on water, what is that miracle intended to teach me about Jesus? The, uh, the miracle of Jesus walking on water has kind of made its way into the vernacular of our everyday conversation. Maybe not everyday conversation, but we have proverbs and sayings that we, that we say that are taken right out of this miracle. For instance, we refer to somebody walking on water, and what do we mean by that? I'm not sure if it's kind of a blasphemous statement or not. It may be. I remember as a kid, my family used to throw that around all the time. Don't ask me for that. What do you think? I walk on water? And my parents or my grandparents would say that, and what they meant by that was, I'm not a miracle worker. I can't just pull this out of my hat. I'm not perfect. Or we say to somebody, he thinks he walks on water. What do we mean by that? He thinks he's God. He thinks he deserves your worship. Well, that I remember as a kid, a small child, hearing that thrown around in my family from time to time because I grew up in a religious family, not necessarily a Christian family, but a religious family. And uh, I think it was my grandmother who used to use that quite often. And I asked her, or it was my mom, I can't remember which one, what that meant. And she told me about the story of Jesus walking on water in the Bible. So there's an account where Jesus walks on water, and that's where that phrase comes from. And as a small child, not understanding the context or the point of the miracles or anything about who Jesus was, as a small child, I thought to myself, what a great ability that would be to have to walk on water, right? As a child, I didn't understand the significance of it. I didn't understand who this person named Jesus was, just that there was a story about a man who had the ability to walk on water. And in my fertile, young imagination, without any understanding of who Christ was, I could think of all sorts of great applications for that type of an ability. And I came up with a whole bunch of applications. Well, Jesus never walked on water to benefit himself. He only did it one time, that at least is recorded here in the Gospels, only one incident of it. He never did it for his own benefit. I could think of all kinds of ways that that would benefit me. Jesus didn't walk on water for himself. In fact, this miracle is done for the disciples. Do you remember chapter 6 contains two miracles to two different groups of people with two different responses? Remember that? from the introduction of chapter 6, two miracles to two different groups of people with two different responses. We've looked at the first miracle. The first miracle was to a crowd of 20,000 people, one of the most public ministries of miracles that Jesus did. The crowd had a certain response. They wanted to force him to be their king. They wanted to use his power for their end. The second miracle is one of the most private miracles that Jesus did to only 12, not to 12,000, not to 20,000, but just 12 men. One of the most more private of his miracles, and it was done just for the benefit of the disciples. And they have an entirely different response to the miracle than the crowd had. The crowd had one response, and the disciples had a different response. And we see, as we work our way through chapter 6, that John contrasts these two responses, that of the crowd and that of the disciples, in in all kinds of different ways, all the way through chapter 6. We see that they have a different response to Jesus' miracles. They have a different response to Jesus' teaching. And they have a different response to Jesus' questions. And all the way through, we are contrasting these two faiths the fickle, unreliable, shallow, temporary faith of the multitudes who followed him because of the signs, and the real, God-given, genuine, saving faith of the disciples and what that looks like. And we look at the different fruit. There is no fruit to the faith that is fickle and that changes and that is shallow and temporary. 
But there is genuine fruit from the faith of those who trust Him and who are genuinely saved, and that's the disciples. So we'll work our way through the miracle, and we'll just make some observations and applications as we go along. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Now Matthew and Mark, they mention something that John doesn't mention here, and it's just a slight thing. Matthew and Mark both say that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Matthew says immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. That word made is used of somebody forcing somebody else to do something that they did not want to do. John MacArthur notes that. And it's used that way in various times throughout the New Testament. Jesus, it literally means to force or to compel. Now, John just says the disciples got into the boat, but Matthew and Mark tell us Jesus had to compel or force the disciples to get into the boats and to go across the sea to the other side. And they did it. They were obedient. They didn't want to do it. And you might understand why they didn't want to do it. Why would they not want to do it? Well, they had just seen Jesus multiply bread and fish. This was a mountaintop experience. They had seen Him do this. They had witnessed His creative ability. They want to be with Jesus. And I believe that the disciples were aware that there were some rumblings in the crowd about making Him king and crowning Him as king. And they're thinking to themselves, finally, our Master is getting the honor and the glory and the praise and the adoration and the position that He deserves. And God, He has taught us to pray that God's kingdom will come and that God's will will be done. And here we have a crowd, the timing of this could not be perfect, it's a Passover, in front of 20,000 people who want to make Him king. This is a great opportunity. The The next thing we have to do now is just crown Him, have a coronation ceremony, and we take Him as king and to go into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, get in the boat and go across the sea. Really? Get in the boat and go across the sea? And miss your coronation? I wouldn't want to do that. I want to be here when they crown you as king. This is the, Jesus, this is the point where we begin to argue about who's greatest in the kingdom. Not go across the sea to Capernaum. We have to establish who gets the first rank and the second rank and the third rank. And we want to be here to witness this. And Jesus says, get in the boat and go across the sea. John notes that the disciples did that very thing. They were obedient. Now, they didn't want to obey Him, but they were obedient. And friends, that's that's just the reality of it. Sometimes we obey, even though we don't want to obey, right? That's what the disciples did here. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to depart from Jesus, but they obeyed Him because He told them to do it. There's different kinds of obedience. There's obedience that wants to obey, and there's obedience that doesn't want to obey. Now, obedience when I want to obey is better than obedience when I don't want to obey, but obedience when I don't want to obey is better than disobedience. It is always better to obey even though I don't want to than it is to disobey. Even though ideally I should want to obey the command. The disciples obeyed even though they didn't want to. Jesus compelled them and they got in the boat and they crossed across the sea. John says in verse 17, John says they were getting in the boat and they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Capernaum was kind of Jesus' home base operations in the northern section of the sea of, uh, uh, by the Sea of Galilee. It was his home away from home. When he started his public ministry, he spent more time, did more miracles in Capernaum than any other city in the nation of Israel. He taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, spoke in the synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, the discourse of John 6 is given in the synagogue at Capernaum. We find that out from verse 59. So Capernaum is his home city. That's where John says the disciples were on their way to. Now, there's there's some discrepancy, and I use that term loosely. It's an apparent contradiction between what Mark says and what John says. Mark says in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. John says to Capernaum. Mark says to Bethsaida. 
John says they were going to Capernaum. Mark says they were going to Bethsaida. Now, where were they going? Bethsaida or Capernaum? Is this a contradiction? No. I'm glad somebody answered that. No, it's never, it's never a contradiction. So how are we to understand this? What's going on here? Well, you understand a little bit of geography and a little bit about what each gospel writer is trying to say, then we'll kind of resolve this. And I want to work our way through this because it helps us to understand how we deal with things in the gospels when we come up with apparent discrepancies or contradictions. Mark says they departed and they were going to Bethsaida. John says they were on their way to Capernaum. Now, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, there was a Bethsaida. There was a Bethsaida on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee as well, but on the western shore, there was another Bethsaida. There were more than one, there was more than one Bethsaida. Bethsaida was just south of what is called the Plain of Gennesaret. Capernaum was on the western shore to the north of the Plain of Gennesaret. So they were walking distance between the two cities, Capernaum being on the north, Bethsaida being on the south, and between that, the Plain of Gennesaret. Now, both Matthew and Mark Note that after the storm, which we're going to read about, after the storm, after Jesus got into the boat, that the boat came ashore at the plain of Gennesaret. So Mark says they left for Bethsaida. John says they left for Capernaum. Matthew and Mark say that they landed between Bethsaida and Capernaum in the plain of Gennesaret. So is this a contradiction? Were they going to Bethsaida or were they going to Capernaum? And the answer is yes. Let me give you an illustration that will help clarify this. Let's say that I plan a trip this afternoon, that I'm going to go to Coeur d'Alene, and I'm going to spend all afternoon in Coeur d'Alene. I'm going to have lunch in Coeur d'Alene. I'm going to do some shopping in Coeur d'Alene. I'm going to go to Costco. I'm going to visit some friends. I'm going to spend the evening there. I'm going to have dinner in Coeur d'Alene. And then after my whole afternoon evening, say eight hours in Coeur d'Alene, I'm going to Spokane. I'm going to spend the night in Spokane and then come back the next day. So I get down from here and I leave a rush before I have a chance to lock anything up. And you ask Dave, Dave, where's Jim going? And he says, he's going to Coeur d'Alene. And then you ask Jess, where's Jim going? Jim's going to Spokane to spend the night. Which one of those two guys lied to you? Neither one lied to you, did they? Neither one lied to you. Both of them described my trip from two different vantage points. Dave described the first leg of my trip. I was going to Coeur d'Alene. I'm spending the whole day of Coeur d'Alene. Just didn't happen to mention the fact that after Coeur d'Alene, I was going to Spokane. Jess looked at my trip, and being a detail person... He jumps on it and says he's going to Spokane because Jess is thinking of the whole trip. Where am I ultimately headed? That's exactly what the two gospel writers are doing. They did depart from the west eastern shore to go across to Bethsaida. That was the goal. They were going to land in Bethsaida and walk to Capernaum. Mark is describing the first leg of the journey from the eastern shore to Bethsaida. John is describing ultimately where they would land up, and that was in Capernaum. Because you look at verse 59 of John chapter 6. And John says these things he said to them in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So this whole discourse that comes after this miracle takes place in Capernaum. So what is John describing? He's telling us ultimately where they were headed, the ultimate destination. Mark is describing where they were sailing to, and they were going to walk from Bethsaida up to Capernaum. Now, when you give the gospel writers the benefit of the doubt, and you give the Holy Spirit the benefit of the doubt, and you presume that there is a way of understanding the big picture without seeing a contradiction, then all of those discrepancies just melt away. That's all you have going on there between Mark and John. And you probably wouldn't even have known that contradiction if I hadn't brought it up, would you? Because you didn't catch it. I read Mark, and we read together in the Scripture reading that he was departing for Bethsaida. And then I read here in John that he was going to Capernaum. And how many of you honestly noticed that there was a discrepancy or a difference? One. Oh, two. My daughter. Man, I love you. Thank you. That's good. I love you too, Tom. Two people noticed that there was a discrepancy, but most of the time we read over those things 
But when we understand the big picture, then we can say he is going to Bethsaida and he was going to Capernaum. John describing the ultimate destination, Mark describing where they were going to land. Ironically, they didn't land in either place. They landed between in the region or the valley of Gennesaret. All right, back to our text. Back to our text, verse 17. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Twice, John mentions the timing. It was late. Do you remember what the concern was of the disciples before Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish? The disciples came to Jesus and said, It's getting late. Send the people away so that they can go into the surrounding regions and find food and lodging, for it's getting late. That was the concern. Well, now it's even later because they fed 20,000 people, gathered up all of the fragments. So by this time, the sun is set. It is growing dark quickly. John mentions in verse 16 that evening had come. John mentions again in verse 17, it had already become dark and the disciples had got into the boat to head across on their way ultimately to Capernaum. And Jesus had not yet come to them. John's looking from the vantage point of history there saying Jesus did not get into the boat with them. They were alone. Jesus stayed on the shore. Matthew and Mark both note Jesus stayed there and he went up on the mountain to pray. Now look at verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee has, was notorious in the day for its storms. Rapid, quick, fierce storms could come up, and that sea was known to go from something that looked like glass to white caps that would overturn small boats. Almost in a heartbeat it could happen. And here's why it happened. Geographically, we know why it happened. Divinely, we have to say that God was, of course, in control of the circumstances and the weather. But geographically, there was a reason why the storms would come and come quickly. The Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. And on two sides of that lake were large mountains that rose up to 2,000 feet. And then there were these gullies that um, drained down into the head of that lake. And so what would happen is the hot air during the day would settle onto the surface of the lake. And then at night as it began to cool from the 2,000 foot elevation, the cold air begins to come down the mountain slopes and it hits the surface of the sea and begins to stir it up like a cauldron. In 1859, a man named William Thompson wrote a book called The Land and the Book. And it was his illustrations and observations from traveling extensively throughout the land of Israel. And he describes one such storm that he uh, witnessed and was present for on the Sea of Galilee. Listen to what he says, quote, My experience in this region enabled me to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind. I have seen the face of the lake like a huge boiling cauldron. The wind howled down the valleys from the northeast and east with such fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore at any point along the coast. To understand the causes of these sudden and violent tempests, we must remember that the lake lies low, 600 feet lower than the ocean, that the water, cor- that the water courses have cut out profound ravines and wild gorges converging on the head of the lake and that these act like gigantic funnels to draw down the cold winds from the mountains. On the occasion referred to, and now he's describing his, an occasion in which he camped by the sea. On the occasion referred to, we pitched our tents on the shore and remained for three days and nights exposed to this tremendous wind. We had to double pin all the tent ropes and frequently were obliged to hang on with all our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tabernacle from being carried up bodily into the air. No wonder the disciples toiled and rode hard all night. Small as the lake is and placid in general as a molten mirror, I have repeatedly seen it quiver and leap and boil like a cauldron with driven, when driven by fierce winds, end quote. Now you notice quite a difference between what they'd experienced just hours earlier and what they're experiencing now, right? They've got into the boat and they've gone from a mountaintop experience, literally it was on a mountaintop, but it was also emotionally a mountaintop experience of watching Jesus multiply bread and fish and with him 
and the hailing crowds and the love of the crowds and the fawning adoration of the multitudes for him as king. And now they have gone, in a matter of just a few hours later, they're out in the middle of the sea without Jesus. And it's not the warm sun beating down on their face, but the cold wind and maybe even rain coming down upon them as they're out in the middle of that boat trying to make for land. It's quite a difference of circumstances, isn't it? But is it not true that oftentimes in our lives, the seasons of privilege and blessing are often followed by hardship, toil, affliction, trials, and suffering? That's just the way that life is. There are mountaintops, and oftentimes God, after a mountaintop experience or a great season of our life, filled with blessing and privileges, brings affliction or trial to remind us that those things are not permanent. It's his way of sort of bringing affliction for the purpose of reminding us of eternity and that we ought not to set our hopes on the mountaintop experiences. Here the disciples are out on the lake alone without Jesus, and it's quite a, quite a contrast to what they had enjoyed just hours before. J.C. Ryle notes this, Affliction and crosses are grindstones on which God is constantly sharpening those instruments which he uses most. That's the purpose of afflictions and trials. The disciples were out in the boat. It was night. It was dark. It was cold. Verse 18 says, The sea began to be stirred up because the strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Mark notes that they were about halfway across. How far was it from one shore of the Sea of Galilee to the other shore? It was about six miles. So Mark says they were out in the middle. John says they had rowed three or four miles across the sea. So they are out in the middle of the sea. And Mark notes it was the fourth watch of the night. Mark kept time by the Roman reckoning of time. A watch of the night was about three hours long, and that was how the Romans would divide the nighttime between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. into three, four three-hour watches. So Mark says it was the fourth watch of the night, which makes it somewhere between what? 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning when Jesus finally came. Now, when did they get into the boat? About the time that it was getting dark and evening had come, they got into the boat to head across the sea. How long have they been out on the boat? <laughs> It's an eight-hour day out there rowing, and they've made three or four miles. Now, don't think that they woke up from a nap and got into the boat. Remember what their day had been like the day prior? They had come across from the west to the east to get some rest and to be alone from the multitudes. And they got over there, and there were multitudes there. And they, Jesus taught and healed, and they were there and awake all day long, busy, active, involved in ministry. At the end of that day, they fed the 20,000 people, picked up all the, the fragments from that, then, of course, they're exhausted. And Jesus says, get into the boat and go across the sea. They get into the boat at evening, go across the sea, and they roll all night long. They're tired. They're cranky. And have you ever been so exhausted that your eye plays tricks on you? I've done that driving, right? Maybe not the best thing to confess, but you're driving and you're so exhausted, you think, did something just move or did I see something or did something, I'm seeing lights or I'm seeing something. You get so exhausted that your eyes begin to play tricks on you. The disciples have been out on the water all night long. Jesus has been on the mountain. They're facing the waves. Jesus is on the mountain. Now they are alone, but remember, Jesus is up on the mountain and he's praying. And what do you think he's praying for? I believe one of the things he's praying for is his disciples. They're out on the lake. And though they, Jesus is out of their sight, they are not out of his sight. And it's very similar to what we go through today. We are in the midst of life's trials and afflictions, suffering and circumstances and the temptations and all of that. And Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, constantly making intercession for us. That's what he was doing on the mountain for his disciples. They're in the, out in the boat, all alone. They've been out there all night long. They're tired. They're exhausted. And now comes the miracle. Look at the end of verse 18. Sorry, end of verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, this is a miracle. And like with the feeding of the 5,000, skeptics who don't like to admit to anything supernatural come up with all kinds of ways of explaining what really went on here. So let me 
Let me tell you what skeptics and liberal German theologians love to come up with when they look at texts like this. One of the things they say is that the disciples, it was dark, it was a cloudy night, it was a stormy night, and the wind was blowing, and they were a lot closer to the shore than they thought they were. And what they really saw was Jesus walking along the shore, and they couldn't tell where the shore started and the water ended. And so what they thought they saw was Jesus walking on the shore. And they, were, of course, were being tossed by the waves right there next to the shore. And these stupid Galilean fishermen who had never, who had only spent their whole lives on the lake and knew every nook and cranny and piece of shoreline on that lake and had sailed at night and day for their entire lives, they were unable to perceive that Jesus was really walking on the land. And so Jesus waded out into the water and got into the boat, and then the boat washed ashore. And that's what we have described here. Does it take more or less faith to believe that nonsense than to believe what's just actually written? Somebody else has said that really what, what the disciples didn't know was that there were rocks right below the surface of the water, and Jesus, having grown up in that northern region and spent much time on that lake, knew where the rocks were, and he just hopped from one to the other out to the boat and gave the disciples the impression that he was actually walking on water. Once again, does it take more faith to believe that nonsense than it does to just believe that God in human flesh walked on water? It is a miracle. And it's no more difficult for Jesus to walk on water than it is for him to create it out of nothing. It's no more difficult for him to walk on water than it is for him to turn water into wine or for him to calm the raging of the sea, which the disciples had already seen in Matthew chapter 14. They had been on another boat voyage with him while he was asleep in the back and the storms came and he simply spoke and all of the elements obeyed his voice. And here all of those same elements are obeying him but just in a different way. Rather than being calm instantly, the elements now are just upholding his weight. And this is a miracle, and God in human flesh can suspend the laws of nature, and that's exactly what he did. And he walked on water out toward the boat. Now, whether Jesus walked down from the mountain where he was praying and the three miles out or four miles out across the Sea of Galilee to the disciples on the boat, or whether he just went instantly from one place to the other, we're not told. My suspicion is that he walked the distance, but I have no problem with him simply going from one place to the other. By the way, that's what he does at the end of the miracle, right? He goes from the middle of the sea where this miracle takes place, to immediately washing up on shore. So if Jesus can take a boat and the disciples from the middle of the sea to the shore instantly, immediately, he can certainly take himself from the top of a mountain to the middle of the lake instantly and immediately. So he walks out on the water and the disciples see him and they are frightened. And John, really an understatement, they were frightened. Do you remember what Matthew said? Matthew said when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Mark says, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. They were filled with fear. Now what's interesting is Matthew, Mark, and and John all agree that the disciples were not filled with fear until they saw Jesus. It wasn't the storm that caused any fear. They weren't out trembling in the boat, fearing for their lives. Four of these disciples, four of the twelve, had grown up on this lake. Four of the twelve had been fishermen most of their lives. Four of the twelve earned their livelihood on this sea, and they had been in storms like this. They had witnessed stuff like this. They weren't scared. It wasn't until after rowing all night long, being exhausted, being cranky, thinking their eyes are playing tricks on them, that they see him coming out to them in the boat. And they are terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And can you understand why they would be fearful? Where are they going to go? If you see something that scares you in here, you can run, right? But if you're in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, where do you go? And something is coming toward you in the boat, you don't jump out. You can't jump out and swim. You can't walk on water. They saw Jesus. They had no reason to suspect that Jesus would do this. They had never seen him walk on water before. All of their time around the Sea of Galilee, they had walked around the lake, never across the lake. And all the time that they had crossed the lake, it had been on a boat, never on foot. What they saw was completely out of the ordinary, completely unexpected. They thought it was a ghost. They didn't know who it was. And Jesus, upon seeing their fear, instantly calmed it and said, 
Do not be afraid, it is I. And that was enough for the disciples. It is I. Now it's at this point that Matthew records that Peter requested to step out onto the water. We're not going to talk about that because it's not in John's Gospel. Sometime when we go through Matthew, we'll cover that. But this is the point where Peter gets out of the boat and climbs out on the water and sinks and Jesus pulls him out and they both get into the boat. And then Mark notes that, and Matthew and Mark note that when Jesus stepped into the boat, the wind stopped. The wind ceased and immediately they were at the land to which they were going. Now do you notice the difference, the, the response of the disciples to the miracle? They welcomed him into the boat. And the implication of John's statement is that prior to this, they didn't want him in the boat. It wasn't until they realized who he was that then they received him into the boat and were willing to receive him into the boat. Now that's the response of the disciples, true disciples to a miracle. They just want Jesus with them. They're not terrified of the storm. It's not the storm that caused them fear. It was this unknown personage walking on the water that caused them fear. And once they realize who he is, they want again to be with him. They didn't want to leave him to begin with. He had to compel them to leave. And once they were compelled to leave, they left. And now they have an opportunity to be with him. And they just want him into the boat. They don't see in the miracle like the crowds uh, an opportunity to use that divine power for their own ends. That's how the multitudes responded to the miracle. They said, if he has the ability to multiply food, he can feed us forever. We want him as our king. And the disciples didn't do that. They recognized who it was and said, we want you on our boat. Just be with us. Come to be with us. The multitude saw the power of Christ as something to be used for their ends. But listen, a genuine believer does not try to bend the power of Christ to meet his goals, his agenda, and his ends. A genuine believer just wants to be with Christ. That's it. That's all a real believer wants. I just want his presence. I just want his blessing. I just want to be with him. I'm not interested in him using his power to bend heaven and earth to meet my needs, to fulfill my goals, to establish my dreams, to give me all that I want. I don't want that. A true believer just says, I just want Christ. That's the difference between a true believer and a false believer. A false believer wants him to use his power to accomplish their ends. Now, if the disciples had been like the multitude, they would have said, you have the ability to walk on water? You mean after we make you king in Jerusalem, we can simply walk across the Mediterranean to Rome? We don't have to go by land? How great is this going to be? Multiply bread and fish? Can you do that on water at the same time? Feed us while we're walking? Or they would have said to themselves, why don't you give us the power to use that to accomplish our own ends? Jesus, can you imagine the benefits to us if you simply allowed us to walk on water? We could go across the lake and never could you imagine the time that we can save, the fishing spots that we could get to? An unbeliever looks at power like that and says, if, if you could just use that for my benefit. A true believer looks at power like that and just says, I want to be with him. That's what the disciples wanted. Immediately they were at land, and there is really four miracles that took place here. We've covered them rather quickly. Four miracles. Number one, Jesus walked on water. Number two, and this is in Matthew chapter 14, Peter walked on water. The third miracle is that when Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased instantly. And the fourth miracle was that they were immediately at the land to which they were going. Four miracles. Now the language of John and, well, Matthew and Mark, actually, this whole incident is very similar to the language in Psalm 107, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I just want you to listen to the wording of what is in Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is not a prediction of this event. It's not a prophecy of this event or anything. Psalm 107 is describing the majesty and the might of God and his worth to receive praise. But listen to the wording of Psalm 107, beginning in verse 22. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his, his works with joyful singing. Now listen as I read this. If you're a songwriter and you were going to put into poetic language the scene that we have just looked at in the book of John, would it not sound like this? 
Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. And they landed immediately at where they were going, John says. The wording of the psalm, he guided them to their desired haven. Now Psalm 107 is not a prophecy of that event. But it is a very poetic picture describing the majesty of God on the seas. And the disciples see the majesty of God on the sea. The language that is used to describe God in the Old Testament is applied to Christ in the New Testament. And miracles like this evidence to us that He is God in human flesh. Job chapter 9 verse 8 says, God alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. That type of language is reminiscent of Christ and applicable to Christ. So what is it that we learn about Jesus from this miracle? Three things quickly. Number one, sometimes He appoints trials and sends us right into the midst of trials for our good. Knowing that while He may be absent from our vision, we are never absent from His vision. And He watches over us and He prays for us and it is always for our good because He demonstrates His glory and His majesty in the midst of those trials. Second, we learned that Jesus Christ is the Creator. That's what John said back in chapter 1. Every miracle has evidenced this in some way since then, that He is the Creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. He's the Creator of all things. So we've seen in chapter 6 that He's created bread and fish, and now we see that having created elements and created matter, He rules over matter, and He is God, and only God could walk on water. And the third thing we notice about Christ is that He is truly King. Now the disciples only a few hours earlier had seen Him deny the attempts of the crowd to crown Him as King. They had seen Him avert and avoid being uh, crowned and His coronation. And they may have been sitting out on the sea in the midst of that storm saying to themselves, wait a second, I thought He was King. I thought He came to rule. I thought He came to be the King. Now He's denying that He's a King and He doesn't want to be made King. What are we to make of this? And now He comes out walking on the water and what is He demonstrating? The fact that He rules over everything and He does not need the approbation of the crowd and He does not need the the fawning of the crowd. He does not need the acknowledgement of the crowd at all. He rules and He is King. And though He denied their coronation and wanted nothing to do with the phony coronation of the crowd, He shows to His disciples privately in the middle of the sea, I rule over all nature and all creation and I am the King. And I promise you that. So He is God. Now what is our proper response to the miracle? Matthew records it in his Gospel, Matthew chapter 14, when they saw this, and He got into the boat, and the wind stopped, and they came ashore. Matthew says, the disciples worshipped Him and said, truly, you are God's Son. Why did John write his Gospel? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name, What has He shown us that this miracle, that truly this is God's Son, and He is worthy of our confidence, our faith, our trust, and our obedience? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You that You sent Your Son to this earth, and You have given us more than ample evidence of His kingship, of His sonship, of His deity, of His power and authority and His sovereignty. We thank You that it is our joy, and You have made it so for us to bow the knee and to call Him Lord and King. 
We thank you that you have redeemed us and called us into that kingdom and given us a sonship and adoption as sons and daughters of Christ that will never end, that will be the blessing and joy of your people for all of eternity. We pray now, God, that your love and your grace may go with us from this point forward and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.